uh, song that is a psalm of David, and that's who we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the life of David, so uh, just a great great uh, example of, uh, I believe, the way David heard it, maybe out in the fields with the full drum rolls by Dan in the back. That was sweet. David probably heard all that in his head. Well, welcome to Daybreak. Glad that you're here today, and uh, we're going to use a familiar story from the Bible today, like Mel talked about. We're going to use the story of David and Goliath to help frame for us um, today what it is that God uh, has for us. And even if you've you're here this morning, and maybe you're new to church, or you've not heard a lot about the Bible before. Pretty much everybody has some idea of the story of David and Goliath, and everybody loves an underdog story, don't you? Doesn't everybody get behind an underdog story? Unless that is, of course, it's the Phillies getting beat by the underdog Cardinals on Friday night. Mark and I were just talking about that. For many of you, that's not a good underdog story, but typically when we think of David and Goliath, that's what we think about. We think about an underdog story. We think of the unexpected smaller person defeating the larger or more powerful favorite. And while that's kind of a part of what we're going to talk about today, uh, we're going to look at the story from a little different light. We're maybe going to look. We're going to look at the story from inside, from the inside view, from uh, the underdog in this case, and that's David. And what was it that gave him um, the confidence to be able to carry out what it, what it was that God had called him and built him and intended for him to do? in that particular moment or at that particular place in his life. So like Mel said, we're in the second week of this series, uh, Beneath the Surface, where the whole big idea of this series is that we have our emotional health and then we have our spiritual growth and that the two are very closely tied together, that they actually feed off of each other and that a big part of our spiritual maturity and how we're growing up spiritually is linked to how we're growing up emotionally and our emotional health. And so last week, Pastor Sean did a great job talking to us about the reality that in order for us to explore what's underneath the surface, we have to focus on developing both emotional health and contemplative spirituality, that both are important, our emotional health and our our spiritual health as well. So go ahead and reach into your program guide this morning, if you will. You can pull out the outline, and there's some great notes in there that will help you follow along with, with the direction that we're heading this morning. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about seven different ways throughout this series or seven different pathways that will help us to develop uh, a more emotionally healthy spirituality in our lives. And today we're going to use David as a model for um, what it is that we believe God wants to do. And um, we're going to talk about the importance of knowing yourself and the importance of knowing God and how those two things are linked together as well. There are two quotes at the top of your outline. And uh, both come from well-known followers of Jesus from the past. The first is from Augustine. And in about 400 AD, he said this. He said, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? I want to read that again. How can you draw close to God when you're far from your own self? And then John Calvin, about 1,100 years later, wrote this. Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. So knowing God and knowing yourself have, have the importance of those have been, uh, has been discussed for centuries. It's just not just a new idea. It's not a new book that came out or pop psychology that uh, we're throwing out in this series for us to consider. Christ followers have considered this really since Jesus uh, uh, was no longer with us, since he ascended and, and is no longer physically with us. Christ followers have been considering how does our our emotional health and who we are on the inside impact our relationship or or our following and knowing God. 
So one way to look at it is the little diagram that's in the top of your outline there. It says, knowing ourselves and knowing God, they're closely tied to one another, and they actually feed off of each other and build our maturity both ways. As we know ourselves and we know God, it helps us grow. It helps us understand more of us, and in turn, we understand God better. So we need to get to know our true selves, and we need to know who we are at our core. We need to get to the place where we can understand a little bit about our own emotions. For instance, um, why do we feel the way that we do? Why are there certain things in life that kind of are triggers for us that make us feel happy or angry or sad or excited or ashamed or, or anxious? What, what's behind our response and the way that we act? And uh, why do we behave the way that we do at different times? And going deeper and really looking at what's below the surface is, is really hard work. It's not an easy thing to do. It, it takes some intentional effort on your part and on my part to do it. Uh, just this past Friday, each Friday morning, our central staff team at Daybreak meets. And um, we were talking about at this meeting understanding our emotions and how hard it is to identify what we're feeling and what, how our emotions cause us to act. And you know, the people that are on that team, uh, they're some of the most committed Christ followers that I know. I love being on that team because... The people on that team love God and want to serve him and follow him with their whole life. And so I'm challenged when I sit in, in their company. I'm challenged when I spend time with them. And yet, as I, we went around the circle and we realized how much each of us struggle with our emotions and letting God speak to us in those places uh, where we're angry or, or where we're hurting uh, or maybe even when we're joyful. And, you know, I think this comes from a place where for years as Christians, and maybe you relate to this if you've been a Christ follower for a while, we're almost um, encouraged to ignore our emotions or to really not let our emotions run our life. And though there's truth to that, we don't want our emotions to rule us. Um, at times, I think that has caused us to kind of swing the pendulum all the, the way over. And that, for instance, if we feel angry, we think, oh, I shouldn't feel angry, so I'm going to act like I'm not angry. <laughs> or if, we're, um, you know, if we, we're nervous about something or anxious about something, we think, oh, I must not be a good Christ follower because if I was really following God, then I wouldn't be so worried about this. I would know that he's in control and I wouldn't feel the way that I do. And so we have all these feelings about our feelings <laughs> as Christians, and so then we we have this idea that, well, I just need to ignore the way that I feel because I wouldn't be spiritual if I actually engaged with what I was feeling in this moment and allowed God to speak to me through those, those feelings. And so uh, I want to encourage you throughout this series that this is really a time for us to say, hey, it is true. We don't want to be led by our emotions. And yet at the same time, the Bible tells us that our God is a feeling God and that we're made in his image. And the Bible tells us throughout, like, for instance, it says, uh, last week we just looked at the end of the, the story with Saul, and it said that God, God was sad that he ever made Saul king over Israel. That's an emotion that God felt. The Bible says oftentimes that God rejoiced when this happened, or, or God was happy when, when uh, people responded in obedience, or at other times that God was angry with them. So throughout the Bible, it records the emotions of our God all the way through. And he was allowed to express emotions, yet somehow we feel as if, well, maybe we're not allowed to express ours. We need to hold ours in because it would be less than spiritual for us to express them. Now, I want to just remind you, you're made in the image of God. And if we're made in the image of God and he's a God who thinks, we think he's a God who uh, wills, we, can, we have the ability to will. He's a God who feels. We have the ability to feel he made us that way. And so we need to learn how to address those emotions that God has placed with, within us and how important it is for us to be healthy 
in that area. And you know, I don't know if you remember this, but they used to, they still have them. I think Pastor Sean actually still might have one outside of his office door. But have you ever seen those emotion charts where it has all the different smiley faces or frowny face or guy with a furled brow or the frustrated look? And it lists all of the different kinds of emotions. Well, counselors use these things to help someone determine what are you feeling right now? Point at the picture. Um, and I'll just confess with you, I'm not even good when I have the pictures in front of me. I, I, I always, there's this, like I was telling the central staff, between being angry or frustrated or disappointed or sad, Sometimes I can't tell in that whole spectrum what I'm feeling. <laughs> like one moment I might be angry about it, the next moment I'm just frustrated or disappointed or I feel sad about it. And so it's really hard sometimes for me to address why do I feel the way that I do and how, God, can I let you come in and help me be a healthier person emotionally? So we need to be willing to go there. We have to be willing to go beneath the surface and look at some of those things and say, okay, God, what do you want me, how do you want me to address what I'm feeling right now? And how do you want to meet me right at this place? And what happens is, is we get to know ourselves, our real and true self, and, and we, we dig below the surface a little bit as we interact with God and we get to know him. But uh, it allows us to interact with God about those feelings. And then we get to know him a little bit better as he helps us address those feelings. But it doesn't end there because as we get to know God the be- better, then he starts to bring healing to us and God begins to tell us the truth about ourselves. And he helps us see some of the lies that we've believed about ourselves, maybe our entire lives, And then God helps us understand that maybe some of the things that we think about him aren't quite true also, that he's different than the way that we've perceived him. And then uh, we start to look at other people differently because God tells us the truth about them and we become emotionally healthy in the way that we relate to God and the way that we relate to others. We begin to know ourselves better and we grow and mature. And that's kind of the heart of what that whole diagram is about. Uh, God longs for us to be the men and women that he designed us to be, to be authentic people that love him, that bear his image. And part of that is emotionally, that bear his image and that reflect that image to the rest of creation. So this morning, we're going to look at David's authenticity. He's a great example of a very authentic guy, and we're going to discover how we can become more authentic too. So uh, that's the first point in your outline. I become authentic or I become who I was created to be when I, number one, know myself, when I know myself. And that's the first part of this process. The first part of this process is just learning to know yourself. And if you remember, last week we talked about Saul, and we pointed out that both Saul's um, emotional and spiritual health were a disaster. I mean, this was a guy who all throughout the course of his life, you never really knew what you were going to get from this guy. He was all over the map emotionally, and, and truthfully, because of that, he didn't know God well at all. And this week, Saul is still in the picture. He's still the king of Israel in this passage we're looking at. But we see the the emergence of someone who is very, very different than Saul. Someone who is a great example of being emotionally healthy or having emotionally healthy spirituality. And that's David. So let's jump back into the part of the story uh, that Mel read of David and Goliath. By the way, I just got to say, don't you love the way that Mel's reading went from reading to drama at the same time? You caught the the slingshot and the stones going in the, and, and, you know, the armor. It was great. Thanks for being so visual with us today, Mel. That was awesome. but we're jumping back into the story, and here's what's happened. David, David and Goliath. David had come to the battle lines. He heard that Goliath was defying God, and he was defying God's people. And he asks about what's going on. And he finds out that the king is looking for someone who would be willing to fight Goliath. So through a number of conversations, David ends up in the presence of Saul. Now, you have to remember that Saul already knew David. 
from the previous chapter, if you read 1 Samuel chapter 16, you'll see that uh, Saul, because of his emotional issues, would sometimes become depressed or distressed, and he wanted someone to come and play music for him. Well, David, at a very young age, uh, they guessed that in this time frame, David was probably around 13 years old. So right in that age, David was already known in the area, the surrounding area of Bethlehem and Judea there as an expert in the harp. So uh, Saul found out about this. He called David in. So David would be a shepherd. Then he'd get the call from, from Saul, and he would come in and play the harp for Saul. Sometimes this would soothe Saul, the Bible says. Other times Saul would throw spears at him. You never really knew, again, what you're going to get from our friend Saul, who is an emotional uh, and spiritual disaster on the inside. So Saul already knows David, and you can read about that in the previous chapter. Uh, but it just, again, shows that Saul wasn't healthy emotionally or spiritually. He didn't know himself well, and thus he wasn't really able to know God well either. So David says this to Saul. He says, don't worry about the, that, this Philistine. I'll go and fight him. And I want you to underline this next sentence. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. Underline this. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. There is no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. And all I hear is the voice of Adrian in Rocky IV standing at the top of the steps and saying, Rocky, you can't win! And of course, that was the moment of inspiration, and Rocky gets on the plane, goes over to Russia, and starts his training montage, which everybody loves, and which many of the men in this room worked out to for years. Be honest, come on, that was what you played. When, all right, that's a little tangent there. But that's what he's saying. This is a voice in his life assigning this King Saul to David. You, you can't possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. And when a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and I club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. For he has defied the armies of the living God. I want you to underline that last sentence. I've done this to both lions and bears and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. He's defied the armies of the living God. David knew who he was. He knew what he had been through. He knew what his own strengths were. He knew what his own weaknesses were. And he told King Saul, hey, I'm willing to take on this giant. I know who I am. I know what I'm capable of. And let me in there to fight this guy. Now again, uh, we're going to talk about in just a few moments that David's confidence in himself was tied directly to his confidence and his relationship with God. And we're going to get to that in just a second. So I don't want you to think this is just all about David. But David did have a healthy view of who he was. And that knowledge helped him in this moment of his life. Now, not everyone in this story, uh, as Mel read earlier, not everyone agreed with David's evaluation of himself and his abilities, right? If David would have believed everyone else, what everyone else was saying about him, he probably would have never been willing to fight or take on Goliath. And this morning, the same is true. The same is true for you and the same is true for me. If you and I automatically accept the messages that we hear, uh, that others tell us about ourselves uh, throughout the course of our life without taking the time to really allow God to tell us who we are and who he designed us to be, we can very easily become false versions of ourselves. People who are never really able to be authentic and people who miss out on really the assignments and, and the life that God had intended for us. So where does this false self idea come from? Well, on your outline there, you can see uh, a few places, even from this example, the story with David, that we can get assigned a message that really isn't God's truth about us. So let me show you a few examples. First of all, uh, my, self, my false self can come from my family. So look at what David's brother, this is David's older brother. Okay, David's three older brothers, the Bible tells us, were sent to war. So this is one of 
David was one of six brothers, I think the Bible tells us. I don't know how many sisters he had, but he had six brothers. And so his oldest three brothers went to war. He was back at home. And so now think about this. You know how you, if you were a younger brother, or you know how younger brothers look up to hearing from their older brothers as far as their own identity? This is what David gets from his older brother. His older brother says, you're conceited and you have a wicked heart. David, you're conceited. You have a wicked heart. I just can't even imagine how that must have cut through David. David's like, what did, I, what did I do? I was just even asking a question. You're already making this judgment on me and you're already assigning this to me. And you know, many of us have hung on to things that we were told about ourselves from our families growing up. How many of you, uh, you know, we all had different kind of things that were said about us. Maybe for some of you, you were the good child. Maybe for some of you, you were the bad child. Maybe you were the funny one in the family. Or maybe you were the one who wasn't good, as good as the other one in the family. Uh, did anybody get any of those messages uh, spoken to you? Growing up? It's okay to be honest. Go ahead, get your hand up there if you heard any of those messages. All right, the counselors can come in now and take those <laughs> folks out. Get you some help right now this morning. No, uh, we can end up living our entire life from the frame of reference um, and believe things about ourselves that aren't true. Even if you're from a great family, whether intentionally or unintentionally, messages could have got, gotten through to you that have helped define you your whole life that are not God's truth about you. And they're, maybe they've limited you from experiencing what God has wanted you to experience, but you let that message be assigned to you, that voice be assigned to you. And while I'm certainly not saying that you should ignore everything that your family members say, have said to you or that there's no value, because there's a lot of truth in things that family members can speak to you as well, but it's important that you invite God to speak uh, into those things so that you can identify what's true and what's false, what's from him and what's not. If David would have believed his brother here, this is the first, the first thing that came at him, this, uh, this first message from, uh, about his false uh, self. Had he embraced that, he probably would have said, oh man, I am just conceited and my heart is wicked and, and my brother is right. I just better, I better go home. Let me just leave the battle and get out of here right now. I better not fight Goliath. And David would have missed out in a huge way, part, one of the significant parts of God's plan for his life and for the lives of the, uh, the whole nation of Israel. You know, a second place that we, our false self can come from is authorities in our lives. And look at Saul's response to David. Um, even after David had served Saul in many different ways uh, and helped him, he says, don't be ridiculous. You're just a boy. You're just a boy. When, have you guys ever experienced that in your life when someone who is in authority or someone who is in power said that you don't have what it takes? That's exactly what happened to David. Uh, someone in authority, the king at that time, looked at him and said, you don't measure up. You don't have what it takes, David. And that can happen to you, as I, you and I as well. Or the third area, maybe an, an enemy or an adversary. You have no chance against me. That's what Goliath says. You have no chance against me. Today I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds today. Those are pretty strong words. <laughs> so you get it from your brother. You get it from the king who's supposed to be on your side. Uh, both of those two, and then you get it from your enemy as well. Just this assignment, this, this assignment uh, of value or these messages that go to you. And my point is that many times we instantly accept what other people say about us. And we don't even really notice that we do it, but we embrace sometimes these false versions of ourselves, and we end up living that paradigm or with that frame of reference instead of maybe the true, our true selves and the frame of reference that God would have us to have. When I was in seventh grade, 
I loved basketball. It was just my older brother and I played basketball all the time. It was our life. It didn't matter what the temperature was. Uh, we were always out, out back playing basketball. And I was excited because my seventh grade year was the first year that I could play for the school. And when I was growing up, there weren't a million rec leagues like there are now. Your kids can start when they're two playing any sport that they want. But seventh grade was the first time that we could really play on a team, like on the school team. Um, and so I was really pumped about this and uh, went out for the team. And the coach that I had was a nice enough guy, but it became pretty evident. It became evident pretty quickly who his starting five were going to be, and I was not one of them. Um, later on in life, I, I kind of realized that there were some politics to this because the coach was best friends with like three of the dads of the starting players. And I didn't know that then, but looking back on how they all hung out after practice together, their families, I, I, I can see that now. Uh, but I was always the first guy in off the bench. That was kind of um, my assignment. And my whole seventh grade year that went, went that way. And I was okay with it. I just got used to it. That's my contribution. I get to play about a quarter of the game in and out for, for uh, whoever played the positions that I could cover and needed a rest. And, um, but then eighth grade came. And I was disappointed to find out that the same guy who coached seventh grade was now going to move up and coach the eighth grade as well. And guess who his starting five were? <laughs> The same five guys uh, who had started the year before. So I felt like right from the beginning of the year, I just don't even have a chance. You know, it's, it's not going to happen. Uh, so I was disappointed, but the season got started, and, and that was my role again. And then we got um, about three or four games in. It was in December, and I can remember that one of the guys who was a starter, his family went on vacation for a week. I think they went to Disney or something. So I, I didn't care where he went. I was just excited because I knew that I was the next guy in, so I was going to get a chance to start. So uh, I started this game, and uh, by the grace of God and, and, and a whole bunch of miracle dust sprinkled in there, I ended up scoring the first 10 points for our team in that game. Now, I only scored 12 points in the whole game, but I scored the first 10 points uh, for our team in that game, and I was so excited. I thought I played a great game. I thought, you know, I was just really, really uh, kind of fired up about this whole thing. And then the boy came back from vacation, and the next game he was right back in the starting five, and I was right back on the bench again. So it took a lot of, kind of a lot of guts for me, but I think on my parents' encouragement after practice, uh, one of the next nights I stayed and decided I would ask the coach what I could do, how I could work harder, you know, to be able to play more and, and uh, to uh, be a part of the team in a greater way. And I don't remember exactly what he said, what his words were, but I can remember the exact place in the gym where we were standing to have this conversation um, and I remember what I felt like he said to me coming out of that conversation. And here's what I felt like he said. He basically said, you are never going to be a starter for me. And he said, you are not starting material. So whatever his words were, that's what I heard that day from him. Now, looking back on this, I know that my, that coach uh, didn't have it in for me and he wasn't out to ruin my life. That wasn't his goal. I think he did ruin my NBA career, but nonetheless, uh, but he sent me a message that caused me to live under his paradigm for quite a few years as it related to sports in my life. And it really caused me to think, whatever I try out for, I'm probably not going to be quite good enough to be in with the starters. So I think it really had a big impact on how hard I worked at sports and the position I accepted or the truth I believed about myself because of that message that I received from that particular coach. Whether he intentionally meant to be that harsh with me or that's just the way I heard it or received it, I don't remember. But, but it really impacted my life and made a big difference. And that's the kind of thing that can happen to us and cause us to live as our false selves instead of who God actually created us to be. So 
maybe it was something that your family told you about you growing up, or maybe even something that has been said about you all along the line from family members that you've just kind of embraced as, I guess that's who I am. Or maybe it was something that someone once said who was an authority over you, and you just internalize it. Or maybe it was possible that one of your enemies, someone who didn't like you at all and wasn't looking out for your best interests, said something nasty about you at some point in your life, and you just said, they're right, that's me. I was always an insecurity of mine, and now they said it out loud, and I'm just going to receive that message. Maybe it was even the enemy of your soul who said something to you one time in a quiet moment that has been defeating you and keeping you in living out your false self instead of the true design that God created you to live, instead of being the true person um, that God had created you to be. Now, thankfully in this story, even at the age of 13-ish, David was healthy enough. He knew himself and he knew God well enough. And he knew that the message that he got from his brother, the message that he got from King Saul, and the message that he got from Goliath did not line up with the clear messages that he had heard from God about who he was. So thankfully, David had, had that different that perspective. But how do we take the steps to really know ourselves in an authentic way, to develop our real and authentic selves? Pete Scazzaro, who wrote the, a lot of the materials that we're working on as we go through this series, uh, he wrote, uh, he suggested that there are four things that could really help us um, in this way. And they're there in your outline. Uh, the first is I can develop my authentic self by first paying attention to my interior in silence and solitude. And that's really taking the time to do some interior work, to ask yourself about why you feel certain things, why you believe certain things about yourself, maybe why you've always believed certain things about yourself, and then inviting God to speak into those most painful or maybe most confusing areas of your life. Really inviting God's voice into those places and ask and wanting to hear from him about those things. And that's what this daily office book that we've been encouraging you to go through in this series is really all about. Um, And it ties in so closely to this series. It intentionally gives you a chance to pay attention attention to some of those things that are going on beneath the surface. Um, And it really invites you to allow God to speak some truth to you about some of those different things in your life. So this is more than just a uh, spending time with God devotional, this really invites you and causes you to think and then in- welcome God into some of those feelings that you have as you think about those different areas of your life. We'll talk more about that in just a couple minutes. Another thing that you can do to be authentic is find trusting companions. And while it's important that you don't listen to everything that everybody else, the messages that everybody else gives you, uh, it's also important that you have some friends who know you and love you and who you can trust to be truthful with you and also be truthful to you. And what we're not saying, what I don't want you to hear me saying, is that you should only care about what God thinks and what you think and don't listen to anybody else. Because God gives us also a lot of true messages and good messages through our family members, through those in authority over us, um, and through people who really love us and care about us and want to point us to Jesus. We just need to be uh, able to know ourselves well enough that we know when those messages line up with what God is saying to us. I've heard it said somewhere that you're in a dangerous place if you haven't given anyone else in your life permission to tell you when you're wrong. You're in a very dangerous place if there's no one around you who has permission to tell you when you're out of line, when you're believing a lie, when you're living a lie, when you're not living your authentic self, when you're kind of at a place where you're defeated and you're retreating and you've not given anyone else permission 
to call you out and say, I don't think that's your authentic self. I don't think you're being authentic. I don't think that's who God has created you to be. We all need trusted companions who uh, we can not only share ourselves with, but who we give permission to call us out when we're not thinking or feeling properly. Um, Moving out of my comfort zone, and this one just makes sense. I become more aware of who I really am when I step out of the normal, comfortable routines uh, that I'm in, and I allow myself to be stretched and challenged. That's an important one. And then finally, praying for courage. This involves us going to God and being honest and asking God to give us courage to empower us to be authentic and to be who he created us to be. Look, if David needed courage um, in that moment, I know he did in those moments. He needed the courage. He needed to have a direct line from God. He needed to know who he was and have the courage to be able to follow through with his assignment. If he needed it, I'm confident that we need it as well. So we need to become authentic by knowing ourselves. And then the second point in your outline is I become authentic when I, number two, when I know God. When I know God. And as we mentioned before, these two things, knowing ourselves and knowing God, they're intricately tied to one another. And by knowing God, I don't mean that you just know information about God, like you know your social security number, or you can list the presidents for me, or you can even list the books of the Bible, or you know a lot of scripture. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But I'm talking about knowing God relationally, uh, to know him like you'd know a best friend, to know him like you know your spouse, to know him like you might know one of your parents. We're talking about a relational knowing and not an inform- just an informational knowing. And the story of David continues with him still arguing his case to Saul for why he should fight Goliath. Look at this passage of scripture. It says, the Lord, would you underline the Lord? The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me. Underline those three words. So the Lord will rescue me from this Philistine. So here we see David pointing out, not only did he know his own abilities, but he also knew God as well. He knew where his power was coming from. And then Saul finally consents and says, all right, go ahead and may the Lord be with you. And then in the next couple of verses, as Mel uh, so aptly read and illustrated for us, uh, David tries on Saul's armor and just says, look, this isn't going to work for me. This is not, I can't do this. So he, he takes it off. He says, I'm going to go without it. He picks up five smooth stones from a stream, puts them in his shepherd's bag. Then armed with only his staff and his sling, he starts across the valley to go fight the Philistine. So David knew himself. He knew his own abilities. He knew his own experience. He knew what he was capable of, but he also knew God. He also knew his creator well, and he knew that God was going to give him the victory. And he had a close enough relationship with God. He he trusted God enough that he was willing to risk himself in order to enter into this battle uh, with Goliath. And there is something about the way that David knew God that's illustrated throughout. If you look closely throughout the the whole book of 1 Samuel, even into 2 Samuel, as you see David's response as king, There is something about the way that David related with and knew God that we can all just take on and learn from because David was so close to his God. The song we sang earlier, just a reflection of a psalm of David where it's just, oh my God, you will not delay. You're my refuge and strength always. No matter what he was going through, he was going through it with God. David did life with God. His relationship with God was one that intersected all the different areas of his life. He didn't just have a relationship with God that was centered around when he went to the temple or when they were in a time of trouble and he needed to call on God. His relationship with God was something that took place when he was out in the fields doing his shepherding. It took place when he was fighting lions and bears. He didn't go into those battles just in his own confidence. He went into those battles knowing God was his strength. 
when he was playing music for the king, when he was writing psalms of, of uh, celebration or even the psalms of lament that he wrote, when he was in victory or when, when his life was in discouragement or failure, even when he, we find out later in life some of the, the tragic areas of David's life when he, when he sinned against God and still God said, you're a man after my own heart because David lived life with God. He invited God into all of those places of his life. But we struggle sometimes to relate to God in that same way. And uh, recently, Mel's husband, John, recommended a book to me that was just a great, great uh, reminder for me. The title of the book is With, Reimagining the Way That You Relate to God. And it's written by a guy named Sky Jathani. Now, how would you, how would you, wouldn't that be a great name to have? Sky Jathani. Anyway, um, this book this morning uh, that I want to share with you, or part of this book, he points out uh, that we were all created to live life with God, that that was God's desire for us to be with him. And that's actually part of the reason why we are encouraging you to read this daily office devotional, because it's not, it just doesn't encourage you to learn more about God. It does that, but it also encourages you and leads you into times with God, multiple times a day that you're actually including and incorporating and asking God to get involved in the way that you feel and the way that you think and how your day is going. Multiple times each day, it gives you an opportunity to spend time with him. And here's what Jathani says. He said that that instead of doing life with God, most of us tend to relate to God in one of four other ways. And they're in your outline there this morning. See if any or all of these are ways that you've noticed that you relate to God at some point. Uh, We're tempted to live, first of all, life under God. And that's saying, if I obey God and do what he wants, then I'll get the blessings that I want. So basically uh, what that's saying is, if I don't do exactly what God wants, then he's going to bring hardship on me. So I think of, of this as us treating God like a dolphin. There's a picture for you there. That we can get to jump through hoops. If I obey God, then God will do this thing for me. That's the way we think. If I do my part, I do my thing, I will, then God needs to do this, this other thing. And the problem is, it actually puts you in the driver's seat and you believe that you can control God. You try to use your goodness to get God to do favors for you. And I don't want you to feel condemned or, or um, as we go through these this morning, I want you to think about, yeah, I do that sometimes. Or I don't do that. It's just important for, for you to think about how do you relate to God right now. Um, and so with all of this, the problem is that it exchanges relationship with God for manipulating God. It exchanges you living life with God in relationship with him for a manipulating relationship with God. The second is this, life over God. God isn't really active in everyday life. He created the world and gave us the Bible from which we can get good principles. So it's my job to figure out how to put those principles into action in my life. And this is treating God kind of like a mad scientist. Uh, A long time ago, God created the world, put some principles and laws into place. He's this kind of all-knowing guy out there, and it's my job to figure out these those principles and laws, and to use them for my own benefit. But the problem with this is just like the first one, uh, just like life under God, the focus is control for you. Uh, Only instead of trying to get God to do what you want, you try to figure out how God made it work and then follow that formula for your own personal gain. It exchanges relationship with God for life principles. You just want to cut to the chase and say, God, give me the right principles to live by, and I'll figure out how to make my life work. So then the third way is this. Um, you're tempted to live life from God. God exists to help me through my problems and help me achieve my dreams. He is my divine assistant. And this is treating God like a genie in a lamp. 
Uh, I live my life however I see fit. Then if I have a need that comes up, maybe I'm short on cash or uh, I didn't study well enough for a test or someone who's really close to me is sick or going through a rough time. And I, I call out to God, I go to the genie and I say, genie, will you grant my wishes? I need these things done in my life. And this is really the ultimate consumer mentality when it comes to, to uh, your relationship with God. Uh, your first question is, what's in it for me? Or how exactly will God benefit my life? says that I'm willing to let God be a part of my life when I have a need to be met or some pain to be relieved in my life. And so it exchanges true relationship with God for getting stuff from God. And I have to confess that I've done all three of those things, but I think this fourth one for those of us here who have really sought to follow God at one point or another in our lives is probably a big one for all of us. Um, And the fourth one is this, uh, life for God. And that's, I fear living a life of insignificance. My life is defined by all the things that I've accomplished for God. I view my worth based on my ability to accomplish what God has called me to do. And this is treating God like a taskmaster, like he's got a mission and it's your job to help him and to complete it. And there is an endless list of things for you to do, and you've got to prove to him that you are worth putting on this earth. So you're going to get to work. And the problem here is that it really creates an idol out of accomplishment or out of making a difference, and it creates this drive in you to prove your worth to God and others. So it exchanges a relationship with God for doing stuff for God. Now, um, I think probably all of us have seen ourselves relate with God in in one of those ways, um, I know I have, which is why I enjoyed the, the, the framework of this book so much. And I'm guessing probably you all relate to one or two as well. But, you know, all four of those things aren't necessarily bad. There's kind of a good part in each one. And I think that's why we get a little confused and deceived. For instance, God does want us to live obediently to him. So there's, there's a good part in that first one. And God does give us some principles that we can follow. And It's important for us to know what they are. And he does want us to come to him with our wants and with our needs. So so that's important too. And he does give us assignments and he wants us to make a difference in the world. So there are so many places in scripture where God challenges us even in in those ways. But I want you to catch this this morning because this is kind of what it's all about really. And that's that God calls us as Christ followers, as his children. He calls us to himself first. God invites us first and foremost to do life with him, to do life with him, and that all of those other things, whatever good parts may come out of them, would flow out of our desire to do life with him and the time that we've spent with him. And when we get that clear and authentic view of who we are and who he is, to get to know him and to love him first, just in the way that he loves us, that as his creation, that that's what we're we're called to do. And And so the truth is that we're invited to do life with God. And that's what David did. That's what a lot of people in the Bible did. That's what Jesus did. And that's what God invites us to do as his followers. There's a quote, if you flip over the back of your outline, that's there, that's uh, from the same book. And I want you to follow along as I read it. It says, we should not be surprised to discover that when God desired to restore his broken relationship with people, he sent his son to dwell with us. His plan to restore his creation was not to send a list of rules and rituals to follow, life under God, nor was it the implementation of useful principles, life over God. He did not send a genie to grant us our desires, life from God, nor did he just give us a task to accomplish, 
life for God. Instead, God himself came, Jesus, to be with us, to walk with us once again, as he had done in Eden in the beginning. Jesus entered into our dark existence to share our broken world and to illuminate a different way forward. God invites us to get to know him personally, to live life with him. And I have to tell you, even on the way over this morning, I've been reading through the daily office this week, and um, you know, I'm driving over here this morning, and it's early, and I just felt God, because of the time that I spent with him this week, just inviting me to be with him today, to be with him as I came and talked with you guys today, to be with him as I leave here and go to my father-in-law's birthday party lunch, to be with him as I get to look into the, the eyes of the people that he brings my way today, as, as I face different emotions and feelings today, some that might be great and others that might be really disappointing. I don't know, but God was inviting me to spend this day with him and to learn from him and to grow in my re- relationally knowing him and not just knowing all that I know about him, not just wanting you to know more about him, but really wanting you today to know him and to experience life with him. And you know, after Goliath mocked and he threatened David, look at these last few verses. It says, David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you, underline this, I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel who you have defied. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. Underline that but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle. You can underline that. He will give you to us. David knew himself, but he knew that this was all about God because he knew himself so well, he could also know God so well. So he knew authentically, yeah, I ha- God has already, I know God well enough, I've already gone out and slain bear and lions and Goliath, you are no different because I know myself and I know what God can do through me, and I can stand confidently before you as a 13-year-old before a mighty warrior and say, you're going down. <laughs> like, this is it. This, I, it's not about me. Yeah, I've got the experience to do it, but it's about what God is going to do in and through me, and everyone will know that there's a God today because David, in that moment, chose to live his life with God as he knew himself. He knew God, and he knew himself. David's knowledge of himself and his knowledge of God frees not only him from the pressures that were around him, but it frees everyone around him in those moments. And in the same way, there are powerful forces that come against you and come against me and try to bury our true selves in Christ. And following Jesus is all about knowing God, but it's also all about knowing yourself. And when we bring those two elements together, when we really know ourselves and we know God, the Bible tells us that great power is released. The power of God is released in great ways when we're able to live that way. And my hope for us today is that we'll be people who pray similarly to Augustine's prayer, which said this. Can we all read Augustine's prayer together? Let's read it together. Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray. You know, getting to know yourself, that you may know God, really sums up this morning what following Jesus is all about. It is the journey of a lifetime to do that. And this morning as 
you're here and you have a quiet few quiet moments before we go on with our day, before the day kind of runs away and everybody has different things going on, this morning I want to give you a chance to maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time, really begin to live life with your God. To not just live life for Him or under Him or over Him or from Him, but to really live this day with your God. You know, someday when you stand before God, He's not going to look at your life and compare it to how some other person lived their life. And He's not going to hold you accountable uh, for how some other person lived. He's going to hold you accountable for how you live the one and only life that He designed you to live the one that he intended you to live, your authentic self. You know, I believe today that God wants to give, release power into some of our lives today as we open up our hearts to him. And so I'm going to just give you an opportunity to do that in these next couple moments, just to pray a prayer along with me, if you would. Jesus, I want to be emotionally healthy. God, I want to know myself. And so God, I trust you today and I'm willing to start to dig down deep into some of the things I feel and some of the ways I act and behave because of those feelings. And I'm willing to allow you to come and meet me in those places. And some of them might be painful or they might be hard. I might find some great treasures that I never even knew were there, God, that you have for me. But I open myself up today because I want to be the real me. I want to be authentic, and I don't want to live the things that other people have assigned to me if they are not from you, God. So God, I invite you to come and speak to me in those areas where I need it today. And God, I also confess today that I want to be spiritually healthy. Lord, I want to live life with you. I want to have a sense of contemplative spirituality in my life. I don't just want to be a person who puts Christianity on on Sundays or calls out to you when I'm in trouble. But God, I really authentically want, want to know you. And I want to live my life with you. And so that's what I invite you to do today, God. I'm going to welcome you into my day. I'm going to pick up this daily office devotional guide. I'm going to spend time throughout my day including you and inviting you in this week, starting today starting right now I invite you to come in and and lead my life I want to hear your voice I want to follow you God I want to know you so Lord thank you that in your big plan you not only planned on us living life with you but you came to live life with us Lord that you a long time ago knew that our need would be that we'd need a God to come to us. We would need a God to come meet us where we are and be with us. So Lord, I thank you this morning that not only that we have the opportunity to be with you, but Lord, that you're right here with us in this moment. Thank you, God, for being God with us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.